You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to continue in Genesis, but because we've all been gone for a couple weeks, uh, I want to give just a quick little review of where we've been so far this semester. Uh, we started with creation and what we learn about God from the early chapters of the Bible, especially in Genesis 1 with his love of beauty, uh, the purpose that God has, his intentionality, and his power. Uh, we looked at uh, mankind and specifically the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, what we're made for, and kind of this creation mandate that we'll hear again tonight that, that we were made to uh, be like little C creators under God's authority. Uh, we're also made to imitate him because we're made in his image. And we're made to relate to him and to one another. And we looked at Genesis 2 and saw and kind of explored that, that tension that we live in between uh, being made in the image of God but still being creatures. Uh, and we said that we are honored creations who are exalted above all of creation, right? The, there's nothing else in creation that God speaks to and, and blesses like he does mankind. Uh, but at the same time, we are just creations. We're creatures. We're not the creator. And so kind of the, the tension that lives there and talked about what it means to be human and that we're limited and that we need sleep and that that's not a bad thing, uh, all of that. Then we looked at the fall, which is a bad thing, right? Because sin enters the world and everything breaks. We spent a week talking about, like, kind of analyzing the temptation and that conversation between the serpent and Eve. Uh, And then we spent a week looking at the fallout. Uh, Remember the line from Leonard Cohen, there's a crack, a crack in everything. But then looked at Genesis 3.15 and this promise of a snake crusher. Uh, That's how the light gets in. Did anybody go and listen to that Leonard Cohen song, by the way, called Anthem? It was like real scratchy old man voice. Yeah, Casey's laughing in the back. The Father John Misty cover is much more palatable to the ears. So if you're looking for something to listen to, I'd recommend that version of it. Uh, After Genesis 3 in the fall, we picked up the pace a little bit. We looked at Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel and the breakdown of relationships, uh, sin corrupting everything, but we saw God's grace in the middle of it. And two weeks ago, we looked at Noah and kind of started his story, uh, saw that uh, even more grace has to come first. Like grace is the first word that God speaks to us uh, because we went from the fall in Genesis 3, which was disobedience, right, to, to Cain murdering his brother at the beginning of Genesis 4, which is arguably worse than just disobedience, to Lamech at the end of Genesis chapter 4 boasting about how like, if you, if you accidentally tripped him, he would kill you, right? Like, his retribution goes a thousandfold, and he's proud of that. And he's a polygamist, right? So, like, things are getting bad. And then the Noah story introduces with, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If grace doesn't come first, there is no relationship with God. Right? God always interacts with his people through grace because there's no other option on the table. It's either that or judgment. Tonight we continue the story of Noah, uh, and we'll see that this theme of the sinfulness of mankind remains front and center throughout the story, uh, but it has some interesting applications to it. We're going to do something a little bit different uh, because the story of Noah in Genesis 
takes up four chapters. I'm not going to read them all. Uh, but I do want to sh- make sure that like, we're all on the same page. Uh, because maybe we haven't thought about Noah since Sunday school. Uh, maybe um, we just like, have never heard the story. Maybe like, we think there's something about rain and a whale and or that's Jonah. And like, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with what the story is. So I'm going to read this little introduction to the story from chapter 6. And then our whole first point tonight on your sheet, the decreation thing, um, I'm just going to kind of tell the story of Noah um, and make some comments about it. And then we'll end with 8 through 15, or 8, 15 through 9, 1 for our last couple points. If that doesn't make sense, just wait. You'll see this is what we're going to do. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word that we're about to hear, um, and pray, Father, as we look at this story of Noah, uh, that you would help us to see your great grace and your great mercy towards us in our great sin. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 6, starting verse 11, says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Uh, God looks out over his world and he sees that it's ruined. What he created and declared good has been broken by sin Uh, And he looks out over it in creation. Nature, animals, men have all been spoiled. Uh, It's broken. It's corrupted. It feels like it's beyond repair. And so God speaks to Noah and tells him of this plan. God is going to send a flood to wipe the slate clean. In the Hebrew mindset, nothing more represented chaos than the sea. So the idea of a flood and the sea covering everything is about as bad as it could get. Remember that the Israelites were a people who lived in the desert and in the mountains, that their like biggest body of water was the Sea of Galilee, which was not that big, right? Uh, yeah, storms would come on it, but you could like walk around it if you needed to. And so for these people, the sea represented chaos and like hopelessness and confusion because like where do waves come from? And if you go out on a boat, like you can't see more than a couple inches down, who knows what's down in the depths and is about to eat you. So it's good news in creation when God pushes back the seas to make room for life. It's good news in Exodus when Israel arrives at the banks of the Red Sea. Remember, they've left Egypt, but they're not in the promised land yet, and they come up against the Red Sea, and everybody despairs and says, we're going to die because the sea is hopeless. The sea is chaotic, but God shows his power and that he parts the sea and he makes a way through for his people. And in Revelation, part of the beauty of the new heavens and new earth are that the sea is no more. Doesn't mean there won't be beaches, but it means that everything the sea represents, chaos, fear, uncertainty, will have no place in God's new world. So God is, in a sense, saying, I'm going to let that kind of chaos and disorder back in. I'm going to undo creation, right? We're going to go through this process of of rolling back the tape, decreate, and then we'll start again. But, God says to Noah, I will preserve you and your family. Remember, Noah had found favor in God's eyes, and God shows him this incredible grace. 
So he tells Noah to prepare for this flood that's coming. Go build a boat in the middle of the desert. It'll be for you and for your family and for all the living things that can't survive this kind of disaster. God says, like, bugs, animals, birds, they can all come onto the boat. And you're like, what about fish? And then somebody's like, it's a flood. They'll be fine. Um, And it's a big boat. The measurements in the Old Testament given are in cubits, which don't mean anything to us, but it's about a foot and a half, 18 inches. Uh, And so a boat 300 cubits long is one and a half football fields. 50 cubits wide is half of a football field's width. And it's about four stories tall, right? Not a subtle boat that Noah is instructed to build. And chapter six ends with Noah did this. He did all God commanded him. We don't know how long it took or what kind of complaints he got from his neighbors, but he did it, right? He went out and he built this boat. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, God gives this warning. He says, in a week, it's going to start raining. So gather what you need, gather the animals, gather the food, and get in the boat. Some of you have heard me do this with my kids, right? In five minutes, it's going to be time to clean up and get ready for dinner, right? Because if you just run in and rip that Band-Aid off... Everybody rebels, but you say, hey, don't start anything new, but you can keep playing for five more minutes, and then we're going to clean up. And then we tell them five minutes is over, and everybody rebels anyway, but whatever. Um, But God gives this warning, seven days, and it's going to start. So there's this great procession of animals and birds and bugs all heading to the ark. And once everyone is on board, once everybody has their buddy, right, because it was two lions and two giraffes, male and female, so that they can make more of them on the other side of this flood, we're told that the Lord shut them in, right? This big door on the side of the ark, God himself closes it, seals it up, protecting and shielding this kind of remnant of creation. And then it starts to rain. And it keeps on raining for 40 days. There's actually this callback to Genesis 1, uh, where if you remember in Genesis 1, neighborhood of verse 6 and 7, God separates the waters above the earth from the waters below the earth, right? And the Hebrew kind of understanding of, of the way that like rain and continents worked was there was this big dome that the sky was in, and it was all surrounded by water. Um, and like the tides happened because water seeped up from below the earth, and rain happened because there's all these holes in the dome, right? Like Their understanding of science isn't what it was today, right? But that's, they understood that it rains and the tide does things. And there's this this understanding or this comment in Genesis 7 that these waters came back together, right? It rained, but also the water came from below and came from above and just starts to cover the earth. And after the rain stops, even the mountains are covered. So we've had 40 days of rain, and then the water just kind of sits there for 150 days, And this is totally conjecture, because Noah actually doesn't do that much in the story. Like, he doesn't say anything. Um, But what do you think was going his mind during the 40 days of rain? And during the 150 days of floating? Right? Like, this is over six months. We're not told how specific God was with Noah. Right? Did Noah think it would only rain for a few days? Maybe a week tops? I mean, maybe he thought about it like I thought about blizzards as a little kid growing up in Virginia. We're like, it snows like crazy and we're stuck in the house. But like, it's good family time, right? And we play games and do puzzles and watch a movie and sit by the fire. And then eventually the trucks come by and dad clears the driveway and we go on with our lives. 
But they've been in this boat for half a year. Did he wonder if it would ever end? Did he wonder if God had forgotten him? What do you do with God's apparent delays in your life? Just a thought, something you guys can talk about in community groups. Again, it's conjecture. We don't know what Noah did. But what we do know is what chapter 8 starts out with. God remembered Noah. That phrase, God remembered, is a comfort throughout the whole Bible. Later in Genesis, we're told that God remembered Rachel and her childlessness, and she gives birth to Joseph. In Exodus, we're told that God remembers his promise to Abraham, and so he frees the Israelites from slavery. It's a prayer in the Psalms. Remember me, O God. Don't forget about me. Notice me. God does not forget Noah and his family and their boat full of animals. And eventually, the water subsides. There's some birds that come and go that commentators don't really know what to do with. If you read six different commentaries, they'll say they represent six different things. So I just think it was part of the story, right? Some birds came and went, and they brought olive branches, and who knows what they represent. Um, but the waters subside. The, mount, the ark comes to rest on a mountain, and, and life kind of explodes out of this ark as a kind of recreation. Uh, and we get this in chapter 8, verse 15 on your handout. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. One quick note on just the story as a whole before we move on to, to this passage in particular. Uh, in chapter 6, right before the floods come and it's just this long waiting game, in chapter 6 there's this refrain that happens over and over that Noah did as God commanded him. Uh, God says, go build a boat, and Noah did as God commanded him. God tells him, make it out of this kind of wood and make it to these dimensions, and Noah did as God commanded him. Gather these animals, and Noah did as God commanded him. Over and over, there's this repetition and emphasis on Noah's obedience. And we said a couple weeks ago that the true gospel, the real good news, is not that, we call it N-shaped religion, right? Like lowercase n. I know there was some confusion with like a big N. It's a lowercase n. It's just one bump. Um, that's not the gospel, right? Where we offer something to God and then therefore he's in our debt. We offer something and he's required to bless us. Instead, we talk about the real gospel, the true gospel being U-shaped grace, right? Where God reaches down to bless us, he takes the initiative, and then we respond not to pay him back, but with gratitude and with worship and praise and obedience, in the Noah story, we, we often get it backwards, right? We think that Noah was righteous because he obeyed God, or he was righteous and therefore he found favor with God. But, but we talked about a couple weeks ago that that's not the order of things, right? 
the, the author of Genesis tells us that Noah found favor with God, therefore he was a righteous man. And then he obeys. And what we talked about two weeks ago is how easy it is for us to flip that order, right? To flip the true gospel of God's grace taking the initiative and us responding and flip it over, right? To where our relationship with God is based more on how we're doing than his promises, right? We, we flip it around to say our relationship with God is kind of contingent on our obedience, on our goodness, because that's how everything else in our life works. We default to our works earning God's love. And that's really easy for us to do, but just as easy is for us to shorten the real good news. It's just as easy for us to focus so much on the fact that grace comes first that we forget that something comes second, right? Our obedience, our response. Because the fruit of grace in our lives is to be a changed life. Resting in the grace of God doesn't mean that we simply accept his forgiveness and then go our merry way living however we want. If that's the case, it means that we really haven't understood grace. No, resting in the grace of God means freedom from condemnation from our sins. It means freedom from that just judgment that should fall on us. And now, relieved of that weight of guilt, we are free and able to start killing that sin, to start encouraging that fruit to grow. In other words, we're freed for something. We're freed to obey God. So some quick application for us tonight. Have you accepted what one author calls cheap grace? Grace that forgives, but doesn't transform. Grace that welcomes you in, but doesn't actually change you. If so, then the Bible would say what you've accepted isn't really grace. Because a restored relationship with God bears fruit in obeying God. Again, just want to put that out there real quick. Want to focus in on the rest of our text tonight. Um, And wow, it's already quarter till. Um, Okay, let's look first at the last verse, chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, This should sound really familiar to us. Because it's basically a quote of Genesis chapter 1, right? This is what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 right after he creates them. He said, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And it's not on your sheet, but it gets reiterated again in chapter 9, verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Uh, Both times that God gives this command, he's giving it to people that, in a sense, represent all mankind, right? The first time he gives the command, he gives it to Adam and Eve, our first parents, right? The the first people, and and it's given, we said it's called the creation mandate. This is what mankind is for. And here, Noah and his family are given the command as well, kind of as, as representatives of all mankind, because there's nobody else left, right? It's just Noah and his family. So, so they are representing all mankind. But, but notice the difference. Adam and Eve receive this command in the Garden of Eden. Before sin enters the world, before things fall apart, before Cain murders Abel and all the corruption that happens and is mentioned in your passage at the beginning of chapter 6. So as we read the story of the Bible, starting at the beginning of Genesis, there's this question that should come up. Right? Mankind has been given this mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
but we kind of screwed things up, right? Sin has come into the world. Things are broken. The curse hangs over us. Is this still possible, right? Is this thing that we're made for already outside of our grasp? Or has sin so screwed things up that we've missed our chance? And God, reiterating this command to Noah and to his family, is a resounding no to that question. It's not too late. No, the reality of of imaging God isn't lost. Yes, things are different now. The curse of Genesis 3 still stands over our work and our relationships. But this creation mandate still stands for us to, to fill the earth and to make something of it, to create culture and art and technology and innovation, to protect to steward creation, right? All of this still stands. And even though creation is corrupted, just like we are, it awaits a fuller renewal, just like we do. This is what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Um, It's beautiful outside right now. Like, this is one of the better leaf seasons that we've had in the past few years. Some of you have been here long enough to, like, compare. There was one year where basically, like, we woke up and everything was brown. But this year has been just this explosion of color. And I was complaining earlier about the temperature swings that we've had uh, this week already, where like you wake up and it's 35, and then you get out of your afternoon class and it's 85, and like none of your clothes work. But like you walk outside and it's like you see the colors in the mountains and the clouds hanging in the air and just feel the warmth of the sun, and like this is as good as it gets. And what Paul says is, is that this creation is frustrated and is broken and is contaminated, right? As beautiful as it is outside right now, I mean, it's dark right now, but like in a few hours when the sun's up, as beautiful as that will be, something even better is coming, is what Paul says, that creation itself waits for the revealing of the sons of God, that this curse has spoiled things, but it has not totally like erased things. And that includes our mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. God continues to call us to make something of the world and to work for its beauty and its care. But we can't move on from this passage without dealing with one more thing, one big question that we should all be asking. Why doesn't sin screw everything up again? If what we've gotten in the Noah story is like Genesis 1 and 2 all over again, right? This recreation, this recommissioning of mankind to go out and fill the earth and subdue it. Why, why, doesn't, like, why doesn't that have to happen every couple hundred years, right? Because that's how long it takes for Adam and Eve to sin in the garden, things to fall apart, and God to look down and say, sin has made a mess of this, let's start over. And we know that things aren't any better on the other side of the flood. Sin has still made a mess of this world. Uh, If you keep reading the Noah story, uh, this is the part they don't talk about in Sunday school, uh, but you've got all these echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, in the Noah story, right? The waters recede, like in Genesis 1, the animals and birds come out, there's the creation mandate, and then what happens is Noah plants a garden, right? He plants a vineyard, 
that Genesis chapter 9 tells us, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. But then we have an echo of Genesis 3, right? Another fall, not from the fruit of the tree, but from the fruit of the vine. The very next verse, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, right? That means naked, right? Like this man, this righteous man who's found favor with God, plants a garden and gets drunk and falls asleep. And there's like shame brought on his family because of that. But unlike Genesis 3, God doesn't come down and pronounce a curse, right? That, that break of the pattern should catch us off guard. And, and what's more, did you notice what God said in chapter 8, verse 21? It's on your handout. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But look at the top of your handout it's at 612. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. These verses seem to go against each other, right? Because you've got the same condition, right? The sinfulness of mankind, but two totally different results, right? At the beginning of the story, the sinfulness of humanity leads to destruction. But at the end of the story, the sinfulness of man leads to preservation. This is what God says. I won't destroy everything because mankind is so evil and wicked. And we're like, what does that mean? What's going on here? And it's not just preservation that God promises. It's not just protecting the world from flood. It's, it's actually provision of a rhythmic, predictable world. Right? Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What's going on here? Well, it shouldn't be a surprise because the words are on your handout. But the key lies in those words, a pleasing aroma. Look at verse 20. The first thing that happens right after they come out of the ark, is that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah offers a sacrifice to God out of gratitude and praise for the salvation that they've just received. And for the first time in the Bible, we have this clear picture of the principle that there is something that can cover over our sin, a life given in our place. Yes, sin separates us from God. Sin makes a mess of things. In the words of the hymn that we sung earlier, that I hate, I am evil, born in sin. But the blood of a sacrifice can turn aside God's just wrath against our sin, can satisfy it. And over the next few books of the Bible, this sacrificial system gets expanded and extended and codified and kind of formalized into the life of Israel's worship. But in all of its intricacies and its nuance, it's meant to communicate one thing. Our sin exacts a heavy toll. Death is the penalty, either for us or for a substitute. And as we look back at this passage from this side of the cross, it's clear that all of these sacrifices, even the one that Noah offers, only anticipate the greater sacrifice that will come. Not an animal killed in our place, but the blood of the innocent, willingly shed for the life of the guilty. The blood of Christ, a pleasing aroma to God the Father, covering our sin. This is why God can look at the sinfulness of man 
Noah and his family and all that would come after him, you and me, and say, instead of flooding the whole thing every couple centuries, I will preserve it. I will wait. Because he knows that one day he's going to send his son to make all things right, to renew it all. As we see that, as we look at Christ the innocent, willingly shedding his blood to the point of death for us, the guilty, it starts to change us. As we receive that grace that comes first, we start to respond in obedience, like Noah. And the crazy thing, listen to how Paul describes that obedience. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Genesis chapter 9 describes this sacrifice as a pleasing aroma to God. He accepts it as an acceptable sacrifice that covers over the sin of Noah and his family. And Christ is an even better sacrifice than what Noah offers here, a a pleasing aroma to God. But what Paul says in 2 Corinthians is that as we are united to him, and as we follow him as he leads us, we, in him, are the aroma of Christ to God. And that spills over to those around us. To some, that aroma is like life and is refreshing. And to some, that aroma is like death because it points out our sin, and it points out our need, and it points to his grace. But I I love the way Paul puts it, right? He says, because we're in Christ, as we follow him, God takes a breath and says, like, when he's smelling you, and he says, that smells like Jesus, right? That's really good news, that covered in the blood of the lamb, covered in this perfect sacrifice, we become this pleasing aroma to God as we follow and obey him. I love that this is the way the story of Noah ends. That, that we're given this beautiful like, expectation of a greater sacrifice to come. This picture of, of salvation to come. And we know it's not Noah because the last thing we read about him is how terribly he screws up. And it just causes us to long more and more for Jesus. And so that's what I want the story of Noah to do for us tonight. To help us to look not at the flood, to not look not at like Noah and what he does, but to look beyond him and look to the fuller sacrifice of Christ, who in him we become that pleasing aroma to God. Let's pray.